All right. Well, hey, good morning, uh, everybody. We are glad that you are here, whether it's your first time here or your 2,000th and first time here. Uh, it's great to be gathered together, and I'm just really excited, like I'll share later on in the sermon, uh, just about what God's doing in our midst and in your lives and in my lives and in our lives together. Um, and if you're new and you want to know what's going on, then I'd invite you to grab one of these dealios. You can get it on the way in. There's some stands, and it kind of gives you an overview of what we're trying to do and some environments to get in. And if you want more information, you want to know more about God or ways we can pray for you or different ministries we have or different ways you can serve, then you have two ways to let us know how we can help you. There is this hard copy card that you can fill your name out, um, and you can put that you, you, know, you write some more information. There's some notes area on there, you can click in and one of our team will get in touch with you, or there's a QR code, and that'll take you right to our contact card. Um, but we want to make sure we're serving you well, and, and part of that is knowing you're here and what we can do to walk with you. And so we'd love, uh, if you'd like to, to let us know that you're here with us today and any questions you can have or any ways that we can walk with you. Um, man, for me personally, it's, it's just not been, it's, it's just been a tough couple, I guess, week, 10 days, couple days, couple weeks, um, man, uh, my heart is, as so many, probably everyone, uh, just like we mentioned last week, this, this war in Ukraine and uh, the tragedy that we can't, I can't even imagine, um, but it's been heavy on me, and I've been praying a ton about it, and like I said last week, why isn't God stopping it? I don't know. Uh, I think if I was God, I would have, but I'm not God. And so we trust him. We know he's sovereign. We know he works for purposes that we don't understand. We know that we have hope when one day we will see him, but um, it's just hard to navigate it sometimes. And so I've been praying a ton about it. We prayed last week about it. We sent out an email as a follow-up early to mid last week. And so this is why we really do want to know that you're here and know who you are, because there are things we send out throughout the week that are kind of uh, time-sensitive updates or important ways that you can engage, and we don't want you to miss out on that. And if we don't know you're here and we don't have your contact, we can't send it to you. For those we've had the contact, we sent out um, an email with two practical, tangible ways that you can get involved, one by providing some support through our denomination. They have a crisis response team that's got some uh, avenues to help uh, in this crisis, this war, and there's an opportunity to give to that, and then there's a, uh, a, another link that sends you to kind of a blog and some specific prayer updates and prayer needs. And so two tangible ways. We prayed over it last week. What we're going to do this morning for a bunch of you, over 60 or 70% of you are in our classes in the next hour and a community group in the next hour. And we're going to just spend the first five minutes or so in that time praying for it. Uh, just a different approach to let you, part of the body, to be in some smaller communities and, and praying about it. Um, and that will be important and good. And it just seems there's so little we can do, and sometimes when there's very little we can do, the only thing we can do is pray. And so we will, and we'll do that. Uh, I'll do that as I launch this sermon, and then we'll do that um, in our times together in community groups. Another thing I'd like you to be aware of, and another thing I'd like you to be aware of, uh, there was a pastor here, Mike Kraft. Some of you know Mike and Ariel Kraft. I guess um, they were here when I came here about nine years ago. We got the privilege of serving Mike and I together for a couple years, and then he Never want to be youth pastor forever, want to be lead pastor. So we had the honor of supporting his church, praying over his church, kind of partnering with that as he went to church, plant a church. Um, over the past couple of weeks, in particular the past uh, few days, his wife Ariel 
who is uh, younger than me, right? A young, vibrant, healthy person has had some very significant health issues um, that they're trying to track down and been in and out of emergency rooms. Um, and it's not the best, but they think they've determined it. But Mike called me on Friday, I think it was, uh, just obviously burdened by this. And so our team's been praying, our elders been praying, and we wanted to just open this, let you guys know about that as well. So for those of you who know the crafts, the specific prayer will be for Ariel, that her health situation will stabilize, that the experts will figure out what's going on, um, and obviously just peace, because for those of us who are married, the last thing we want to be doing is taking our spouse who's, I don't know, mid-30s, in and out of an emergency room in uh, pretty significant health crisis. So pray for the crafts as well. Uh, and so those are two things we can pray for. And it's hard to shift. I mean, you guys know me, and later on we're going to have a little gimmicky thing. And it's just a hard shift to go from tragedy uh, to, to a sermon in the text today. And I am thinking about and praying about, do we just carve out a week to try to figure out how to process this whole thing and what do we do with it? And we may do that. We may not do that. I don't know. I'm praying. I don't want to force it, but I don't want to miss it. But today, God does have something for us as we continue in our lives where we are with these needs, praying over these needs out of the book of Nehemiah. And so we're going to press into that. And it's a hard shift. It's like... It's ridiculous. You watch the news. If, if you watch the news uh, it, or, you, you know, you're online, look, scrolling through your whatever news system. I mean, they're talking about the war in Ukraine and the very next minute they're talking about a baseball strike. And the very next minute they're talking about the real housewives of Malibu. And it's, it's, it's this ping pong of, man, it's, it's just a hard shift and a pivot. But we'll do that into the sermon in a minute. And let me just say this, too, and I appreciate th this this won't end up being a sermon, but I appreciate what Emmanuel said. The one thing that's also weighed heavily on my heart for you guys this past week is I know that um, just statistically in our country and around the world, and those statistics have played themselves out in our church community, that through COVID, the amount of anxiety and depression just skyrocketed. And that's not something that just happens out there. That's something that's been in here, and a bunch of you and a bunch of us um, COVID just really caused anxiety and depression to spike in a way, and you're processing through it. And I would imagine that the upheaval in the world and all of that probably has perhaps taken you to another really challenging place as you pursue peace and hope. And so I just want you to know that if that's your story, I've also been thinking of you and, and praying for you. And don't go through that alone. Um, we have different counselors we can refer you to, and we, we don't want you to suffer in silence. And I think one of the, I guess the most encouraging thing is throughout COVID, people who that's their struggle have been just so candid in saying, man, I've never faced this before in my life, but I am now. And it's been um, kind of them to be honest with what they're struggling with and gracious for them to be brave so that we could give them some help. Because when you're in that place, the worst thing to be is in that place alone. And you don't need to be alone. And so if that's your story, let us know, okay? So I'm going to pray. Again, in our next hour, we have classes. We have discipleship groups. There's information in the back of your, back of your bulletins. If you're not in one of those, we'd love for you to be in one. And you will take the first five minutes or, or however long in your group you decide to devote to it to pray over uh, Ukraine and that situation. So let me pray now for that. We'll continue that prayer later the next hour. I'll pray for the crafts and pray for the sermon. And then we're going to take a pivot, and we're going to get into the text of Nehemiah, okay? So let me pray. <clears throat> uh, Father, 
there are moments in life where everything seems out of control. And in those moments, we know that you're in control, um, but it's hard to understand why you're not controlling things in a way that makes sense to us. And there is pain and there is sadness and tragedy that words can't even express in Ukraine. Um, and so, Father, we come again and we ask for your divine work to intercede um, and to stop this <clears throat> and to bring protection and to bring peace to people who today are suffering through loss. And God, I don't even really know how to pray, but we bring all of that to you and we will continue to do so. We pray for the Kraft family and for um, our friends, Mike and Ariel, and the emotions and the health and um, we're just grateful that you're in control of that situation. And so, Father, we pray for your hand. We pray for the physicians that they'll come to a quick conclusion. We pray for peace and comfort for the kids and for Mike and Ariel as they're facing this unknown. Um, and we pray for us now, Father, because we are in Nehemiah, and I do pray that what you have for us as a church is a source of encouragement and a source of challenge that you will make clear to us, and thank you that we can open up your word from a long time ago and see what you have in it for us today. And so, Father, um, it's a heavy time, and it's a time when the hope of our faith and the hope that one day King Jesus will be ruling and the nations will have peace. Um, is something that we cling to now more than ever. So give wisdom to our political leaders, give wisdom to the leaders of the world, um, give peace to those in our body who are struggling with anxiety, Father. Uh, and we just ask you these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, <clears throat> Nehemiah. Kind of feel weird doing it, I'll be honest with you. But we're going to go for it, all right? So, Nehemiah, here's the question on my iPad that we're going to kick off um, this, this sermon with. And here's the question. Have you ever been part of a great team? Have you ever been part of a great team? Have you ever wanted to be part of a great team? And if you've been part of a great team, if you've had that opportunity, what was it that was meaningful to you about that experience, right? In the course of my 49 amazing years of life, almost 50, and as somebody on staff who I adore recently told me who I'm looking at now, I was told, don't worry about being 50, you're just on the young side of old age. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was meant as encouragement, but I started to go up to the top of the steeple to fling myself off, right? So I, as a guy who is on the young side of old age, uh, I've been part of, in my youth, uh, and even now, man, many great teams, right? I mean, I've been part of a great team that played basketball. I thought it was Larry Bird. I couldn't even play basketball or make a team today. But man, even in high school years, part of a great team playing basketball. Then I ran around doing EMS, and there was a group of folks I worked with, partners and medics, and we'd kind of run the same shifts together. Um, and that was a cool experience back when I was a little bulkier and thought I was indestructible. I worked in law enforcement, probation officer, kicked indoors at 4.30 in the morning to get bad guys with the same group of team, the same group of us, would go out you know, every couple weeks and round up these dudes. And then we do what you do when you're in South Carolina after kicking indoors and getting crackheads and putting them in jail. You go to, you go to Hardee's and you get you some sausage biscuits. <laughs> 
I don't know, we just did, right? Same group of guys week after week would kick indoors and then go to Hardee's and get some sausage biscuits. But we bonded through that experience. I've been on some great teams in ministry. Um, then as a litigator, man, some great teams together, litigation teams, and different teams, but the same experience when you're together with a group of people and you grow to trust each other, you grow to care for each other, and you're moving forward together in a meaningful way to try to accomplish the same purpose and the same goal. And, and if you've been part of a team or you've wanted to, you know that feeling, right, of, of being connected to something bigger than yourself with people who you trust, and it's, it's life-giving. And in many ways, when we look at the Scripture, what we see is that local churches, local bodies of Christians who are gathered together are really supposed to function and in many ways are a team. But we're more than just a team. This is like an infomercial, right? You'll get one pillow, but more than that, you'll get a room diffuser. We're more than just a team because what the Bible also makes clear is in many ways we're a family. It talks about you and me being, for those of us who believe in Jesus, being brothers and sisters in Christ. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool that for those of us who believe in Jesus, that you, all of us in this room who believe in Jesus, we're a family. We are brothers and we are sisters united together in Jesus. That's the source of encouragement. But more than just being a team, more than being just a family, what the scripture also talks about is a word we've been talking about a lot the past couple of weeks and months. We're a body. We are a body. Local churches, groups of Christians, our bodies locally together, and also globally the body of Christ. And so over the past few weeks, you and me as a team, as a family, as a body, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. We kicked it off, I don't know when we kicked it off, but a few weeks ago, and we're wandering our way to chapter 3. If you're checking us out online for the first time or you're new, what our practice is is to open up a book of the Bible and work our way through it, kind of paragraph through paragraph largely verse by verse. We've been doing that in the book of Nehemiah. And if you've been with us, here's what you've remembered. If you've not been with us, here's what you haven't yet heard, that a long time ago there was a guy named Nehemiah who was in this political role. He was a Jew um, who was a prisoner of war, but he'd navigated, God had sovereignly put him in this political role where he was a cupbearer for the king who was over that land, right? The foreign invader, the king of those foreign invaders. Nehemiah was a dude working for him in a trusted role. And one day, Nehemiah heard about this need. He heard about this gap. He heard about this problem. The things weren't the way that they were supposed to be. And specifically, the problem was that Jerusalem had been overrun, had been invaded, had been overtaken. And in the process, those invading armies had destroyed pretty much everything. And lots of things had been rebuilt. But one thing that had not yet been rebuilt were the walls that were around Jerusalem. And the walls around Jerusalem were really important because it gave security for the people, and it gave them a safe place in which to worship God. Nehemiah heard that the walls were broken down, and he knew and he heard from that that the people were in danger, that God's worship was being hindered because there was fear and there was worry. And Nehemiah knew that this was not the way that God wanted things to be. In the first couple of weeks, we talked about how Nehemiah processed through that, what he was supposed to do about that. And what we saw last week, right, is that he went public, and he kind of stepped out. He knew the what God wanted him to do. He knew some of the how that God wanted him to do that. And then last week he went public and he told other people and he cast a vision. He tried to build this team of people 
to help him together fix this problem that was not the way that God wanted it to be. What we've talked about the past few weeks is that this desire for God's people individually to step up, to stand in the gap, to fix things that aren't the way God wants them to be is kind of this point that we keep repeating for you and for me and for us. And the question that we've been asking every week, right, just practically in your life, where is that need, where is that gap, where is that something that isn't how God wants that maybe God's tugging on you? And, and every week in this series, you're like, okay, I know how I need to step up. I know the problem in my family, in my culture, in my neighborhood, in my community, in hurting people around me. I know what it is God wants me to do. That's a question that we're continuing to think about because like we've said two out of the several weeks, every single one of you has been specifically created by God in a specific way to do some specific good works, Ephesians 2.10. And part of the goal of this series is to figure out what are those specific good works that God has created you to do. Part of Nehemiah's good work was to build this wall. He's now recruited a team engaging other people. And so in the text today, which will be Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah and this team are going to start to work together. They're going to start to pick up some hammers, pick up some nails, grab them a trowel and get the work done. And over the past few weeks, as we think about Nehemiah and the team working together towards something, you and me and we as a church together have been working towards something. And what we've been working towards together as a group of people is really this vision, right, that we rolled out a few weeks ago. And, and here's what you and I have been really working on, all of us together, that the vision that what we feel God calling us to do is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact people with God's love and truth. We've been rallying around that. We've been talking about that. And I've been here nine years and five days I know for many people that's about nine years and four days too many, but <laughs> nine years and five days I've been here. And I think that in the course of those nine years and five days that I've had the chance to serve here, this is one of the seasons in our church's life that I'm most excited about. This honestly is one of the seasons that I'm just uh, most uh, enjoying watching what God is doing in you and through you even these past few weeks. And so as we're in our stage of our story, as a team, as a family, as a body trying to do this, what can we learn from Nehemiah's story when he and his team and his community started to rally together to do something, to build something? That's what we're going to talk about today. As we do this in our story as a team, what can we see from Nehemiah's story with his team that'll be helpful to us? So Nehemiah chapter three, and here's what I'm going to do. Because I love y'all. I'm not going to make you sit here for an hour and ten minutes and listen to me talk, I don't think. We're going to break this up into two weeks, okay? Our text is going to be Nehemiah chapter 3. And over the next two weeks, we're going to see six lessons from Nehemiah's work and observations that apply to us today. Six lessons from Nehemiah's story that applies to our church today. We're going to do three today. And then guess how many we're going to do next week? Man. Math majors, every single one of you, I'll tell you what. Right, three today, three next week. So, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. If you have a Bible uh, or a device, I would love for you every Sunday to open it up, but I would particularly love it this Sunday because in a minute I think uh, I'm going to do a little bit of reading and it may be helpful to you to follow along. But as Nehemiah is starting this work, let's jump in in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's see what he first does, right? What, what's he doing? What's he recording? 
Verse 1, then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Okay, I got a map for us this morning, and here is the map. Boom. Okay, so obviously you'll see it a little bit better up here, but here's where we're beginning in the sheep gate, okay? And what uh, Nehemiah is going to do in chapter 3 is he's going to work his way kind of counterclockwise around this whole wall and tell us what his team was doing in different parts. And in different descriptions of what his team was doing in different parts, we're going to see different things for ourselves in different parts, right? So Nehemiah is going to work away around counterclockwise in chapter 3 with things that we can learn. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to make a few comments about this map and about the walls and about Jerusalem during this time. Then I'm going to read chapter 3 in its entirety. It is a bunch of names, and it is one of those chapters that if that's where your daily Bible reading, if you do that kind of deal, had you, you'll be like, uh, I'll just keep eating my Honey Nut Cheerios and skip this because I don't need it. There is nothing to learn from people's names. Some of the parts of the Bible I love the most are the people's names because when you take some time to press into it, there is such richness. So I'm going to make some observations about this, read all of chapter 3. And then we're going to just pull the three observations out of it, and then we'll move into our classes after that. So what are some initial observations about that, right? Again, as you can tell by the title, this is Jerusalem's Wall in Nehemiah Day. Um, Archaeologists have uncovered parts of this, so if you want to Google it, you could do that. Maybe next week we'll have some, some information about it. And the archaeologists disagree about the size of that. Some say... That And I don't understand the math on this, but this is what they say. Some say that these walls were two and a half miles around and that this enclosed space were, was 220 acres. I don't know how much an acre is. Next week, I'll try to figure out how much land Calvary sits on, and that will be in some reference. But 220 acres, okay? Other scholars, archaeologists are like, nope, that's way too big. These walls were only two miles around and enclosed 90 acres. I don't know. Either way, we're not talking about Manhattan, okay? We're talking about 220 acres or 90 acres with a wall that is at least two miles around going around, okay? There's all sorts of different gates. You do not need me to tell you probably what each gate does, but I'm going to tell you. Here are some of the gates. Here are some, because I get paid by the word, you know. Did you know that? <laughs> I get paid by the word. That puts it all into context. Um, Sheep gate. You're going to hear these names of these gates. That's where Nehemiah begins. That, through this gate, is where the lambs to be sacrificed in the temple would come. So people would bring lambs to the sacrifice in the temple. Fish gate. Obvious, right? That's where the fishmongers would bring the fish uh, to be sold into the city. The dung gate. Huh? Come on, any ideas about that, right? This is the water treatment area of Old Jerusalem. So all of the, all of the sewage and all of the also just garbage, right, would, would be taken out of this gate um, into a certain area. Nehemiah is going to come around. You're going to hear about the Watergate, uh, not the hotel with Nixon. That's different Watergate. Uh, the Watergate. This is where there's probably a spring right about here. I know you can't even see. Right about there, there's probably a little spring that would bubble up. And so this is where the water would come from. Um, those are, and then Nehemiah is going to make his way back around the Sheep Gate, okay? So it was important to repair the gates first because that was the easiest access point. 
If you want to storm the castle, well, if there's a door that's cracked open, why are you going to try to get through however many feet of cinder block? Why don't you just bust in that little open door? So they have to to start securing it, secure the, those gates. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And, and somebody just said, wow. <laughs> it'll be okay, I promise. I mean, it'll take an hour, but it'll be amazing. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Here's what I would love for you to do, okay? <clears throat> next week, this next week, for those of you who are like, yeah, I kind of want to stick around Calvary Park, I would love for you to read this chapter yourself three times. Three times. Okay? We're going to do it all together once. That don't count. We did it three times. And then I would like for you to grab a piece of paper and just, if anything jumps out at you, I want you to write down six things that jump out at you. You could use the three from today. I'll let you cheat. Then you'll only have to come up with three more. You're going to hear some things that are repeated. And some of those repeated things are largely what we'll talk about next week. So you yourself this week, I'd love for you to read three times. I'd love for you to make six observations and pay attention to what's repeated. And then those repeated things are probably going to be what we talk about next week because there is richness in repeated things in God's word. If you read God's word and things are repeated, you ought to pay attention to those that are significant. Nehemiah <clears throat> chapter 3. I'm going to fumble some of the names. That's okay. Here we go. Then Eliashab, the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanal. You can follow along on the map if you want to, because that's just what Nehemiah is doing counterclockwise. And, and next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechariah the son of Imri, built. The son of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them... Have you already heard some phrase repeated three times, next to them? That's next week. But you can cheat and write that down as one of your observations. Verse 4. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Haksa, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakai, son of Meshabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Not Banana. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their neighbors, their nobles, would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joadiah, the son of Peseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marathonite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Aziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashnabadana, repaired. Melchidja, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the sons of Halash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Right about now, I'm thinking, I should have timed how long it's going to take to read all this. Too late. We're in it. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanath repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkajah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethaharkam, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He repaired it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalom, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Zebuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. 
after, that's pretty cool. David had these mighty men who, man, they were, they were like Navy SEALs times 42. Those dudes were pretty cool. Um, I don't know where I am. After him, the Levites repaired. Rahem, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashbiah, ruler of half the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bava, the son of Hanad, ruler of half the district of Kilah. Next to him, Azar, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashab to the end of the house of Eliashab. After him, the priests and the men surrounding the area repaired. Hmm, that's a little bit of a hint for what's coming next week as well. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azarai, the son of Messiah, son of Aniah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benu, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benu, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on a fall, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Amar, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shalamash, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, not the fifth son, the sixth son, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Barakai, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate into the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate that goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. We have now gone, Nehemiah has recorded for us every single piece of the work that was going on in a counterclockwise manner. And you and I have now heard that. And within that, there are some really, really practical things. And I'm excited about what's in this week, but I'm also equally, maybe a little more excited about what's next week, right? Some, just some great truths for you and I today. But let's pull out our three observations for today. And here's the first one. As we read that list, man, there were lots of different people with lots of different stories and backgrounds involved in the project. There were lots of different people with lots of different stories and lots of different backgrounds involved in this project, right? The people, we just threw some of the lists up here, right? There were priests, verse 1, families. There were perfumers, verse 8. There were political leaders, verse 9. There were women, verse 12. There were goldsmiths, verse 31. There were merchants, verse 31, right? That's a long just some of the people we pulled out. Man, that's a, that's a pretty good smattering of all sorts of different people with different stories, with different backgrounds, with different gifts, who was all coming back to it. This project, this goal that they were pursuing was not something that just a handful of people with the exact same resume were working towards. There were people in all sorts of backgrounds. Everybody had a role and everybody living in that city with their own story, with their own background, with their own gifts, with their own experience, had a part to play in the story. Everybody had a role, and everybody had a role to play, and everybody had a part to play in the story. There was unity in the goal, but there was diversity in the workers. Unity 
in the goal, but diversity in the workers. What does that have to do with you and me today? What is that observation about unity in the goal? What is that observation about? You got some person making perfume, some person, uh, a mayor, right? Women, kids, goldsmith. All those different people serving on that team in that project, what does that have to do with you and me today? Here's what it has to do with us today as we're a team, we're a body, we're a family pursuing and pressing into what God has. Here it is. You have a unique role to play and you're needed. You. If you call this your local church, if you're listening today and you're part of another local church, right, in your local church, you Every, if you just heard my voice, then you're the you. It ain't the person next to you. It's the you, you. You have a unique role to play, and you are needed. You are needed. Let me talk to two different groups of people now, okay? Um, the first group are those who, for the past years and for the past months, have engaged in what we put before you as far as our, build, uh, our vision and you stepped up to help us build the body, right? So let me, that's group number one that I'll talk to. So for those of you that you, past couple of weeks, you've heard about this desire to build the body or even before we've, we've done a vision statement, you've been actively involved. What I'd love to say to you, right, pinging off of this idea that you have a unique role to play and you're needed, all I want to do, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. If you've responded to what we've asked and said, look, we do need everybody here to play a role and you have a unique role and we need you, then I'm just so grateful for all of you who have responded a couple weeks ago coming out of the family meeting and you didn't need to respond to others of you at the family meeting because you were already plugging in and serving. Thank you for stepping up and for using your unique gifts your unique story, your unique background, uh, to enrich, to serve, to help our body connect. Our body today is much richer because of every single person who stepped up than it was when it was just our team doing it. It's richer. It's like a good Sunday sauce with a nice handful of garlic now thrown in there. You are a nice handful of garlic that have made this Sunday sauce of our church Better. I'm, I'm grateful for what you've done. You have made us richer. You have made us better by your commitment. We put out a need last week that we, because again, right, because of our desire to build the body and grow disciples, we've got a lot of young families that are gravitating towards that, and we shared how we needed people to help take care of their kids. Fifteen of you stepped up to do that over the past week. That's amazing. That is kind. That is loving. With your different stories, <clears throat> 15 of you, have added to the people who are already faithfully played to say, man, I want to play a role with my story and what I need to do. When we had the, the family meeting and we had some yummy donuts from icing on the cake and we set some tables up and had people sign up, there were over 126 check marks next to a place that you said, man, I want to play one of those check mark boxes. That's amazing. You Many of you realize that you do have a part to play here and, and we need you and you've stepped up and we are better and we are richer and we are tighter and, and, and healthier because of it. So for those of you who understand this and you said, man, I'm in, I want to do it, hey, thank you. Then I have another group um, that, man, I just want to talk to lovingly and I don't know if Jim Taylor's in here somewhere. I'm going to need his help for this. Jim Taylor's in here somewhere. 
Oh, no. This, he's not in here. Wait, he's going to come. No, it's okay. He, oh, that's okay. Oh, he's here. This is so amazing. All right, ready? Hold on. Stand by for a minute. Here's the second group that I want to talk to. And this group will largely not be any of you in this room. But you should still listen because you're in this room. The second group I want to talk to, and I do it um, with all love and with all patience and kindness, I want to talk to the second group of people who they have a unique role to play and are needed, but this second group of people who out of convenience or preference consider Calvary Church their home, but they are simply choosing not to participate here. They're watching this sermon on their couch. And so if you're the person who I'm talking to, this isn't out of anger. This is out of love for you. We're not talking to the people who can't get here for health reasons. For those of you who are homebound, you're sick, you have um, significant illness and you can't come, it is a joy for us to be able to serve and connect with you. The second group of people we're going to talk to are the people who simply out of convenience are choosing to watch on TV instead of come back. And so let me talk to that a little bit. All right, Jim's going to help me now. Ready? Oh, look at this. This this is Jim Taylor right here. Now, this, we'll call him Manny the Mannequin. I don't really know if it's a man or a woman. I can't tell by the eyebrows. Okay, this is a Calvary Church mannequin. I don't know why we have it, but we do. I... um, I had it in my car the other day and went to Home Depot, and I'm like, I am absolutely, what's wrong? We use him when we don't have enough nursery work. Oh, no. <laughs> That's good. I was at Home Depot with body parts in the back of my truck the other day, and I'm like, some cop's going to pull me over, and this is going to be awkward. All right. This is Manny. Let me tell you what happened. Before March whatever of 2020, in many ways we were one connected body. Then COVID hit, right? And this, we are the body of Christ, right? God uses, not the illustration of a mannequin, but a real life body. And so during COVID, what happened is, right, parts of us, (laughs) sorry, I thought this would be less creepy than a little Barbie, but I don't know. (laughs) Oh, this is terrible. You're right here, but here's what happened during COVID, right? Um, man, we were not able to be all connected together physically. When God talks about a body, look, look at the, tell me about this body. What is this body is physically connected, right? It is to, it is something physical, tangible, touchable, connect, like re, here, all here, right? During COVID, we came apart. Now, Guys like Jim, folks like our elders, our amazing ministry staff, um, we, we did everything we could when it was just us in this building and you guys, we couldn't be together physically to try to keep us together. Our elders divided up the names of people. We prayed for you. We contacted you. Two or three swipes that everybody in our database was contacted in some way. We had virtual prayer gatherings. We tried to do all sorts of things to connect us, but it was different. There is something different from being together over a TV screen than being in person. I am not saying that there is not great um, strengths, that there can be relationships formed over a TV screen. But you know that you'd much rather go to a diner in real life and sit across the booth from somebody with a greasy bacon, egg, and cheese than have them on their TV screen. Have any of you gone out to breakfast with somebody through Zoom? (laughs) No, have you? Good, nobody said yes. You know why? Because you know what you know. You know what you know. You know 
that is more meaningful to connect face-to-face, physically present-to-present than it is over TV screen. That's why when you have the chance and you're able, you choose to go breakfast with people in real life and sit across the table instead of sitting across the TV screen. We've now, many of us, we're back. Jim, this is why I have you, because of the help of Jim and our team and this, I couldn't do this and talk. I'm not coordinated enough to put Mandy the Mannequin back together. In many ways, we're back, right? We talked about how, uh, oh gosh, he's struggling, see? You wanna do the other arm? Yes! So, much of us as a body at Calvary, we are back. And you guys are serving. We talked about 100 and whatever last week. 16 jumped up. We got, we have 60 to 70% of this number right here in discipleship classes next. Man, this is awesome. But you know what? Not everybody's back. Not everybody's back. And there are some of you who are on your couch today that you are this arm. And you're not back because you prefer, because it's convenient. You just want to hang out in your house in your jammies. I get that. But, but here's the reality of life. If this is our body, and if you're over there, then you know what? Th- this is missing something. This is missing something. Because this person is not supposed to be without body parts. This person is supposed to have the entire body together. And for those of you who aren't here because of preference, I'm not going to say this a lot, but I've never really said it yet. Um, we miss you. And not only do we miss you, we need you. Because this is good. And this is better than it was when arms and legs were all apart during COVID. But we're not as good as we could be because there's still some of you over there that we need. And we don't get to benefit from who you are and your story. And we don't get to be encouraged by you. And we don't get to be challenged by you. And we don't get to have you pray for us in person because you're not part of us. Physically back. And we need you. And we miss you. We're not as good without you. And I'm pretty sure that even if you don't think it, it's true. You're not as good without us. This arm laying over here apart from our body, man, this arm can't do a whole lot of things. This arm will have a better experience if it is connected and part of this larger body. Because this is when things function the way that they should. So second group who, this is the reality, you have a unique role to play and you are needed and you can't as efficiently, can you play the role to some degree virtually? Yeah. Can you play it as richly as you could if you were with us? I don't think so. We need you and I think you need us and I think you need us because that's what the Bible seems to say. And the Bible seems to say things like don't forsake gathering together. And none of us choose to go out to breakfast over Zoom because we know it's richer in person. And I'm just saying, we need you and we miss you. I'm now going to move Manny off the stage because for me to talk another 10 minutes with him sitting here will be really creepy. So, goodbye. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm having... Ah!
At any moment, Manny could fall over and, and die. I don't know what the prophetic word of that'll be, right? All right, so what's another principle from Nehemiah's story that relates to our story as a church? Well, Nehemiah 3.1, we, we read it, says this. And Eliashab the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hensai. So the very first group that Nehemiah mentions are the spiritual leaders of that group. The spiritual leaders of that group who are helping oversee the work are also actively involved in the work. And the really interesting thing, again, in the Hebrew, when the Hebrew writers did not get paid by the word. The Hebrew writers were very precise, and when they didn't have bold italics, all caps, right? And so the way that they would bold italics, all caps, to get our attention is they would repeat things. Consecrated, consecrated. What this means, right, is this idea that this work is being set apart by God. Their work as the leaders spiritually in the group who are also working with the people side by side in the group is important work that is the work that God wants them to do. It's set apart for God and they're doing the work of God. And Nehemiah starts coming right out of the gate by letting us know that about his work, which has a carryover to our work today. And here's what it has to do with Calvary number two. As leaders, we are in this with you. Right, we're, we're, we're co-laboring with you. We are with you in this. And this is a work that together we are doing for God. As leaders, we're in this with you, and this is a work that together as co-laborers, all of us are doing in this work. And what we are doing as we talk about our vision, as we talk about chasing after those things, that's the things that God wants us to do. The, the things that are contained in our vision, right, it didn't like come from a fortune cookie, I don't know if you know that. It wasn't like we all brought in Chinese food one day and opened up fortune cookies and said, all right, who's got the best sounding one? That'll be our vision. Here it is. We'll pop back up here one more time. What we said, man, our vision is that we rolled out a few weeks ago. It is. Our vision is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact people with God's love and truth. These concepts come right out of Scripture. These concepts come right out of Scripture, right? And, and as we build a body, as we do that so that we're known, so that we're cared for, so that we're connected, as we grow in our relationship and our bonds together and we grow in our love, do you know what God wants for groups of local churches? He wants that to be a place of love. What, what does Jesus say, right? In John 13, 14, 34 to 35, he says this. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I love you. You also are to love one another. By this, by that, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does it say is going to make people around us know that we are his disciples? What does he say? Huh? That was rude. I'm sorry I said that. That was so Yankee of me. Huh? <laughs> you want love, right? If you want people to know that you are disciples of Jesus, you ain't going to be able to do that through your Facebook posts. You're not going to be able to do that through your yard signs. You're not going to be able to do that through your pithy bumper stickers, right? The way that you will let people know that you are a disciple of Jesus and that we are disciples of Jesus ultimately comes down to how well we love each other as a body. How well you love me, and although I know I'm hard to love, and how well I love you, you're not quite as hard to love as I am, will reveal to people that, man, we're following Jesus. 
that we believe in Jesus. Go back to the vision statement, one slide back if you want, right? This idea that we want to build a body that's known, that's cared for, that's connected, that love, that's right out of the words of Jesus. This is the work of God. And not only do we want to do that, we want to be disciples, right? What were some of Jesus' last words that he told people before he ascended back into heaven? Hey, go into all the world teaching people and make disciples. Make disciples and out of a vibrant group of Christians who love each other, who are doing more than just complacently consuming something for an hour and a half a week. Man, out of that, people who are loving each other and loved by others in the body, who are chasing hard after Jesus, what flows after, out of that is this idea that, man, they're going to be engaged in trying to love and care for other people. They're going to be engaged by trying to meet people's physical needs, the impoverished, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the hurting, those who don't know Jesus. It is going to flow like a vibrant river out of this life of discipleship, out of being part of a body of Christ. This is the work of God. And this is what we're saying, man, we want to co-labor well with you in this work. And we're excited about it. And it is meaningful, good work to do. And then there's one thing, and this is our last observation for now, and then we end with it. There's something that kept people in Nehemiah's story from participating in that vision. There's something that kept people from saying, yeah, okay, this is the work of God. I get it. This is what God wants me to do. I have a unique role to play. But some people chose not to play a role because of at least one thing that we see, and this is what we see In verse 5, it says this. And next to them, the Tekuites repaired. I just love that name. The Tekuites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. There are several groups of political leaders in this story, several groups of political leaders, high-capacity people. They were engaged in the work, right? We we see that in verse 9. It talks about next to them, Raphia, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Verse 12, next to him, Shalom, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. There's lots of different groups of political people who stepped up to engage in this and to work in this, but not every group did because one group wouldn't stoop, right? What does the text say? Their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. They thought that this work was too, was beneath them. That, man, I'm important. You want me to get a wheelbarrow and grab a brick? No, 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 no. That's for the commoners. That's for the people who aren't as important as me. That's for all those other people in the blue chairs who haven't been a Christian as long as I have, or haven't been as many Bible studies as I have, or who maybe haven't served 50 years ago in as many VBSs as I did. But I've done all that. And you know what? For me to do that now, I'm I'm not going to say this to everybody, but they can do it because I'm a little bit too important because I either think I know so much I don't need to do it or I've paid my dues, I'm too important. I don't want to stoop to grab the wheelbarrow one more time or to engage... In the work. These people, what the text is telling us, let petty pride keep them from engaging in the work that God had for them. And here's the challenge and the takeaway what this has to do with our work, chasing after what God has for us today. Do not let petty, do not let pride or a wrongly inflated view of yourself stop you from serving. Do not let pride 
or a wrongly inflated view of yourself stop you from serving? Just because you know a ton of Bible doesn't mean you're too good to serve by greeting somebody on a Sunday morning. Just because you served here for 72 years doesn't mean that your track record is so stellar that God doesn't have some significant and meaningful thing for you to do to help serve in this season. The third takeaway is this. Do not let pride or wrongly inflated view of yourself stop you from serving. I'll ask the worship team to come up here as we transition out of this. Next week, we're going to work through three more things. Again, I'd love for you to read it um, you know, three times and come up with six observations. But, but here's what we've seen this week, that you have a unique role to play and you're needed. And we're so grateful for so many of you who have stepped up to play that unique role. As leaders, we are in this with you, and this is a work that together we're doing for God. And the challenge is do not let pride or wrongly inflated view of yourself keep you from serving. And as we end, just kind of think about this for a minute. What would it look like? What would it look like for a church to be unified as a team and as a body? What would it look like for a church not to be divided into tribes based upon political affiliations or political preferences or all that comes with it, what would it look like for a body of diverse people to be united together as a team and as a body? What would it look like if in a church every single person knew somebody else and was known by somebody else, every single person was actively involved in caring for somebody else, and every single person knew that they could be cared for by somebody else? What would it look like in a church for those people that you united as a body that were known and knowing others to then do more than just be consuming, but to be on fire for the risen king? growing as a disciple, passionate about their spiritual walks, right? Infusing that out of it. And then what would it look like for that body not to become inwardly focused? Because that's the danger. Right about that, every church has a decision to make. Every church has this decision. Man, we got it going pretty good now. We got it good. We know each other. We care for each other. It's like cheers. We all know everybody's name, right? It's like one big happy family Let's just keep digging into us. But what would it look like for that church to say, no, 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 no. We're going to keep digging into us, but we're also going to keep digging into others who aren't yet part of the family of God, who are desperate for hope, who have physical needs that we can meet. And we're not going to become inwardly focused like an elite country club. We're going to be outwardly focused to try to expand and play a role in the kingdom of God for the glory of Jesus. What would a church like that look like? Man, that'd be a good place. That'd be a place it would be a joy to be part of. And what is keeping us from being that church. What if, what if we were that church? There's no reason we can't be. It's up to you and it's up to me. And man, I want to go for it. I'm inviting you to go for it with me.